welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Hey everyone, this is Kelly from True Crime IRL. Welcome back to season three now, back to the show. In season three, I am going back to kind of my old format. I'm just going to tell you one story per episode and we're going to see where that goes. I don't have usually the attention span to stick with a story for an entire season. I did it last season. I hope you enjoyed it. It's just a story I wanted to tell You know, all the crazy stuff that's happened in the town that I live in, in the area I live in, and that's done now. So I'm going back to, you know, the old way I did things, which is one story, one episode at a time. I wanted to mention one more time, this is the week, you guys. This is the week on Saturday, April 16th, that I am going to join Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice and the captain from True Crime Garage, and we are going to be heading out for Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we are doing a show at the Wealthy Theater there. It's a really cool old theater, and I'm really excited to see Grand Rapids. I have never been there before. And we've got some diehard fans that are coming to join us. We're going to do a show that evening, and then it's going to be followed by a meet and greet. So we'll have cocktails, good times, all sorts of good stuff happening. That's this Saturday, April 16th at the Wealthy Theater in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can buy your tickets at captainfathands.com slash events. I'll see you then. He frantically looked around the back seat for something to soak up the two beers he had consumed earlier that evening, but found nothing. That is when a second idea formed in David's mind. He quickly and aggressively ripped out the crotch of his underwear and shoved the cloth deep into his mouth. As he began to chew, he felt a huge sense of defeat. (laughs) There was no way he would be able to stomach that butt cloth he had partied in all... Didn't that story just shake you to the core? Would you like to hear more? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Trevin. And I'm Amanda. And we're the hosts of Seriously Sinister, a true petty crime podcast. Each week, we take a dramatic dive into real-life petty crimes. They may make you laugh or cry, but they won't be like any other true crime stories you've heard. Follow Seriously Sinister wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ten years ago, just outside of Des Moines, Iowa, a little apple cheek kid named Johnny Gosh got up early on a Sunday to deliver his morning newspapers. Seems like all the kids in the neighborhood did it. See, here in the heartland of America, there's nothing more all-American than a boy in his paper route. That's what Johnny Gosh and his parents thought. Until that day ten years ago, when Johnny Gosh disappeared from his paper route and never came home. It's been a decade since Johnny's parents have seen or heard from their son. Ten years since the little red wagon he used to carry his newspapers was found unattended, Johnny missing, no clues to his whereabouts, a presumed abduction. Do you have any suspects? No. Are you close to breaking the case? No. Are you close to making an arrest? No. 
Every day, 2,300 people go missing in America. This is the story of one of them. It's been 40 years since 12-year-old Johnny Gosh disappeared from his newspaper delivery route around 6 a.m. Sunday, September 5th, 1982. This disappearance changed the way parents everywhere watched over their children. Johnny's case has never been solved. John Gosh Sr. and Noreen Gosh were the parents of three children, Johnny being the youngest. Noreen had been married once before, and she faced a lot of tragedy in her life. She and her first husband and their two children barely survived a devastating Iowa tornado that leveled their home and almost killed them. Just weeks after this, Noreen would lose her husband to cancer. Now, Noreen was a strong woman. She carried on raising her children as a single widowed mother until she met John Gosh a few years later. They fell in love, they married, and very soon after that, Johnny was born in 1969. For 12 years, things seemed perfect, and this family lived a picturesque life in the suburbs of West Des Moines, Iowa. At 12 years old, Johnny, like a lot of kids his age, was ready to take on some responsibility and make his own money. He really wanted a newspaper route so that he could save up enough cash to buy his very own dirt bike. And although his parents were fairly protective of Johnny, they agreed with one stipulation. Johnny's dad would go with him to deliver papers in the early morning hours. They just didn't want their son to go alone. However, on that fateful Sunday morning in 1982, Johnny did convince his parents to let him do his paper route alone, and he woke up very early. He left the house with just his wagon and his miniature dachshund dog, Gretchen. Johnny made it to the paper drop-off point where other carriers interacted with him. He loaded the newspapers into his wagon, and two witnesses, one named John Rossi and the other, just known as Mike, reported seeing Johnny talking to a man in a blue car near the newspaper drop-off point. He was asking for directions, but both other boys thought something was very strange about this interaction. Something inside of them just told them to leave and to not speak to this man. So the boys dispersed, heading out on their own routes to deliver the papers. But Mike noticed something else strange as he started on his own paper route. He saw another man following close behind Johnny as he went onto his route about a block away. A neighbor in those early morning hours would report hearing a car door slam. This neighbor went outside and began walking towards the car, and upon doing that, 
the silver Ford Fairmont with Nebraska license plates sped away north from where Johnny's wagon was later found. There were five witnesses in total that reported seeing Johnny talking to an unknown male before disappearing. Witnesses would later undergo hypnosis in an attempt to remember buried details of what they saw, but this would not bring up any new information. Soon after that car sped away with Johnny in it, Noreen and John Sr. would begin receiving phone calls at their home from angry residents who never received their newspapers. Now, mom and dad just thought, you know, maybe Johnny didn't ever make it to his route. Maybe he overslept. Maybe he got to talking to a friend and got distracted. But John Sr. immediately left the house to do a quick search of Johnny's route. Right away, he found Johnny's wagon and Johnny's newspapers. But no, Johnny. If you're a dog lover like me, at this point, you're asking yourself, where was Gretchen the dog? (laughs) So I had to look through article after article after article just trying to find some information that made mention of whether or not the dog was found. And I read a lot of them. Most of them did not address this, but I did find a couple that stated Gretchen the dachshund was later found safe and unharmed. I just had to know. So she actually wandered home on her own without Johnny, which was one of the first indicators that something bad had probably happened. John and Noreen Gosh immediately contacted the West Des Moines Police Department and reported Johnny's disappearance. The police took nearly an hour to arrive, and this is infuriating, but the police department would not declare Johnny as a missing person until 72 hours had passed. That's right, 72 hours, three days. Three days would go by before they would classify this child as a missing person. Come on, people, 12 years old. He was a happy little boy who adored his family, and he was just delivering the paper. He had never even done this paper route by himself until that day. He would never have run away. Noreen tried to explain this to police, but they just wouldn't listen. Even with all the witness accounts of, you know, the strange man, the car that sped away, all of that, police did not take this disappearance seriously. When was the last time you saw him? The last time I saw Johnny was the night of the Last Supper, I call it. Um, Both of my other children were home, which was unusual, to have everybody there at one time. My daughter's fiancé was there, and we had a very nice dinner. Kids were joking around and having a great time. And um, Johnny said, I have to get ready to go to bed because I want to do my paper out in the morning early so we can go to the lake. And he's going to get to take his best friend. So... He uh, said goodnight to everyone, gave me a kiss, and went upstairs. Pretty soon he came back downstairs. He came around in the kitchen, put his arms around me, and he gave me an extra kiss on the cheek, and he says, Mom, I really love you. You're the best. And he turned the corner and went upstairs, and I never saw him again. Last time. How did you then find out he was missing? The next morning, the phone rang uh, a little before 7. 
some of the neighbors didn't get their papers. So we just assumed that Johnny was running late and had just gotten up late. So uh, my husband went out to try and help him on the route, and that's when he found Johnny's wagon sitting at the street corner with the paper still loaded. He had not even cut one bundle, and he was gone. And we knew something terrible had happened. Our son was a very responsible boy. He did not, um, I mean, he was there for his route. He had a perfect service award for every month he had it. He wasn't the type to skip out. You knew it, but it took 72 hours for the police to begin an investigation. It took 72 hours to start what they call an investigation. By the time the police arrived, 45 minutes after I placed the call to enter him as a missing person, I had already talked to all the witnesses. I had the description of the car. I had the description of the man Johnny was last seen talking to and a description of a partial license plate. I did all that before they got there. And sadly enough, at the time, it was pretty normal for police to classify any missing child as a runaway, regardless of the feedback they were getting from parents. They often let days pass before investigating a disappearance. The Johnny Gosh case would become a huge influence on changing these practices. So since several days passed before police took this as a serious and legitimate kidnapping, they had not really investigated the crime scene, and they had very little evidence to go on. No suspect would ever be arrested in connection to Johnny's disappearance, and the Des Moines Police Department would be heavily criticized for this. Noreen Gosh was one of the most outspoken critics of the Des Moines PD. And as months and years went by with no leads in the case, Noreen refused to give up hope that her son would eventually be found. She refused to just let this case fade away like so many other missing persons cases have. She kept pushing and pushing for answers, so much so that detectives used... hmm, a lot of words to describe Noreen Gosh. They called her difficult and abrasive and a lot of other things. In fact, the lead police officer in this case, Chief Cooney, was even quoted in the local newspaper as saying, I don't give a damn about what Noreen Gosh has to say. I'm sick of her. And this was just reprehensible treatment by police and this would not be tolerated today. Do you think this would be tolerated today? I don't think so. But Chief Cooney resigned soon after that comment. He got a lot of backlash for what he said, and he should have. As years went on, law enforcement and the Gosh family would butt heads. They did not work together well at all, unfortunately. The case grew cold, there were no leads, and few tips and more importantly, there was no Johnny. A few months after Johnny's disappearance, Noreen Gosh stated that her son was spotted in Oklahoma when a witness came forward saying that she saw a young boy who looked like Johnny Gosh screaming for help before being dragged off by two men. Now, police could not substantiate these claims and nothing further was ever reported about this event, although Noreen remained convinced that it was her son. And then, almost exactly two years later, another Des Moines, Iowa paperboy 
Eugene Martin, went missing in the early morning hours as he set out on his paper route. Incredibly, just two years after the Gosh kidnapping on the other side of Des Moines, another young paperboy is reported missing. Eugene Martin, 13 years old, vanishing from his paper route on a Sunday morning. Another apparent kidnapping. The similarities between the two cases are astonishing. Eugene, too, has never been found. I want to tell him that I'm still looking for him. I still love him very much, and I want him to come home. Are you any closer to solving the case than you were eight years ago? No. Eugene Martin was just about the same age as Johnny. He was only 13, and the details of Eugene's story were almost identical to Johnny's. Eugene was reported to have been seen speaking to a man in a car before disappearing. Could this be a coincidence? You know how I feel about coincidences. I don't think there's any such thing as a coincidence. These two events were way too similar to not be related, in my opinion, and a lot of people agree. Authorities were unable to prove a connection between the cases, yet Noreen Gosh says that she was personally informed of Eugene Martin's abduction a few months in advance by a private investigator who was searching for her son. I know that sounds really peculiar, but this is what Noreen Gosh said. So she was told that the kidnapping would take place the second weekend in August 1984, and it would be a paperboy from the south side of Des Moines. How did she get this info? How did her private investigator get this info? And why didn't anyone take this seriously? Someone was stealing Iowa's children and the fear grew within America's heartland. As time went on, Noreen Gosh became not only an advocate for her own son's case, but for all missing children in the U.S. In 1984, she joined forces with John Walsh, father of Adam Walsh and host of America's Most Wanted, and other parents of missing children to form the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And if you're a true crime fan, you've definitely heard of that organization before. They do a lot of good things trying to bring kids home. And then milk cartons began to show photos of missing children in an effort to bring attention to their cases. Johnny Gosh was one of the first of these. And their thinking here was, you know, most people buy milk. Most households have a carton of milk in the refrigerator. Most people shop for milk. Most people walk by the dairy case in the grocery store. So they were just trying to make these faces of missing children visible to the public. And they thought this would be the best way for these cases to gain more exposure. Hello, everyone. Milk cartons with pictures of missing children have become commonplace, but the very first boy ever to be placed on a milk carton 10 years ago is still missing. His name is Johnny Gosh. He was last seen on his Sunday morning paper route in September of 1982. For his parents, it has been 10 years filled with anguish, frustration, and tears. For police and the FBI, it has meant hundreds of interviews and thousands of man hours. The result? No leads, no arrests, not even any suspects. 
So also in 1984, a lot of good things were happening, including the Johnny Gosh Bill. It was signed into legislation and it required law enforcement to act immediately when a minor was reported missing. So finally, law enforcement began to acknowledge that the first 24 hours are the most crucial in finding a missing child and returning them home alive. Experts believe that if abducted children are harmed or killed, it happens in the first three to four hours. And it's essential that kids are found right away. That gave me goosebumps. 72 hours, like in Johnny's case, was too long. And people were finally starting to agree with that and to take these missing children's cases seriously. In 1985, Noreen Gosh received a letter from a man claiming that he had info on Johnny's disappearance. He said he belonged to a motorcycle club that was running a large child sex slavery ring and that they had Johnny. He demanded $100,000 from the Gosh family for the safe return of their son. Noreen sent him $11,000 before he was apprehended by the FBI, who said that this story was a complete hoax. Noreen Gosh, though, was extremely upset about this man's arrest because she wholeheartedly believed his story, and she would later say that she felt that the FBI ruined the family's chances of ever getting their son back. What do you think? Was it a hoax? Or do you think this man had credible information? And if he did, why was he attempting to extort the family out of $100,000? So also in 1985, three years since Johnny was taken, a dollar bill surfaced with a handwritten note that said, I'm alive, Johnny Gosh. The dollar bill was given as change to a woman at a Sioux City, Iowa grocery store, and she knew she had to hand it over to Noreen Gosh. At a news conference, both John Gosh and Noreen Gosh showed the media the dollar bill in question and said they would trade $400,000 in reward money for the safe return of Johnny. In 1986, 14-year-old Mark Allen, a third paper carrier in Des Moines, disappeared without a trace on his way to his friend's house down the street. And again, police would state that none of these disappearances were connected in any way. In 1988, the Goshes stated that they received a letter that was believed to be from Johnny, and it was turned over into evidence. The letter had some spelling mistakes, and it said, I'll never be permitted to return home. They've cut my hair. They've dyed my hair. I look different. Please don't ever forget me. Love, your son, Johnny Gosh. Noreen Gosh said the letter showed that whoever wrote it was familiar with things about the Gosh family that no one else could have known. But this letter was never confirmed to be a hoax or real. 
Noreen was left wondering if this letter was actually from her son or if it was another cruel joke someone was playing on her. This case blew wide open with some earth-shattering twists in 1991 when Paul Bonassi, an inmate at a Nebraska prison, confessed to his attorney that he had helped abduct Johnny Gosh years earlier. Bonassi claimed that there was a huge child sex slavery ring that reached far across the U.S. and that he had actually been abducted years before as well. Private investigators who were hired by the Gosh family and had worked on similar cases corroborated this story. Bonassi gave detailed information about a house in Monument, Colorado, where Johnny Gosh and many other boys were kept in the cellar as sex slaves. He knew details about Johnny that Noreen Gosh said he couldn't have known unless he was telling the truth. Do you know what happened to Johnny Gosh? Yes. How do you know? Because I was there when they took him. This is Paul Bonassi, and the story he is about to tell is graphically violent, sexually deviant, and incredibly detailed. A story he says can help solve the kidnap mystery. Bonassi claims he played an active role in the kidnapping of Johnny Gosh and says he has information regarding Eugene Martin. Banassi, himself serving time for child molestation, says Johnny Gosh was the victim of an organized sex ring that preyed upon young boys, that he himself was a part of that ring, and that Johnny Gosh was handpicked to be abducted. He said he asked the boy that they wanted, so that they, that they already had a buyer for him. They already had someone lined up to, to, to get him. That's the one that they were after. According to Banassi, he and two others stalked Johnny by car along his paper route. Banasi's job was to drug Johnny Gosh. When they grabbed him off the street, I was in the car, I was in the back seat. I was the one that put the chloroform over his face to uh, knock him out. Later, Banasi says they took Johnny to a safe house in Sioux City, Iowa, where on the orders of the group's leader, he proceeded to rape Johnny Gosh. Sorry, I don't know what to say. All I could imagine was the pain and the heartbreak that my son was going through and probably did go through for many years. That broke his spirit. That would break his spirit. Noreen Gosh has heard Banassi's story before. She and her husband John have talked to him in prison, where Paul Banassi has graphically spelled out the entire sordid tale. It is from these conversations that she believes Banassi has knowledge of her son's physical condition and perhaps his whereabouts. Do you realize you're hanging all your hopes and prayers on a child molester who's done unspeakable things to your son? There's just been so many things that Paul has shared with us that would have been impossible for him to know had he not been with Johnny. Among that information, letters to Banassi from around the country that he says are from members of the alleged sex ring that kidnapped Johnny Gosh, complete with descriptions of Johnny's physical condition and his whereabouts. One letter, postmarked June of 1990, misspellings and all, indicates Johnny was in Mexico with his captor and says, quote, J.G. is back to blonde and had face surgery. He still looks much the same. J.G., they believe, stands for Johnny Gosh. Another letter states cryptically, J.G. was not the only boy we got from D.M., Des Moines. Banassi believes this refers to the kidnapping of Eugene Martin, the paper boy reported missing two years after Johnny Gosh. You think you can help find Johnny? Yes. You think he's alive? Yes. 
private investigators said that in the child sex trafficking world, a client would put in a request for a certain type of child, and then the sex traffickers would seek out children that met that description. They might stalk their potential victim for a while, take photos to verify that this was indeed the type of child the customer wanted, and then they would take the child and receive payment for them. Basically, they were kidnapping and selling children to pedophiles. And this, my friends, is a real thing. It happens in America every single day. It's not some urban legend. This is real. Later, in a bathroom at a restaurant in Denver, Colorado, in red fingernail polish, painted on the stall, was, I'm Johnny Gosh. I'm alive. Now, we could see how this could be explained as another cruel hoax or a joke if it had happened, for instance, in the Des Moines, Iowa area where Johnny went missing. But it's hard to explain this in a bathroom, hundreds of miles away, in the state of Colorado, where the known trap house was. How would they have even known about this case years later in Denver, Colorado, unless they were somehow involved in it? Police could neither confirm nor deny that this really happened. And you know why? Because they never, not once, interviewed Paul Benassi. So what did the local police think about Benassi's story when they went to interview him? Well, incredibly, though completely baffled by the kidnapping cases for the last 10 years, local police have never interviewed or questioned Paul Benassi. Why haven't you interviewed Paul Benassi? I don't feel that we're prepared to interview Paul Benassi at this point. And that's as much as I'll say about it. This is a guy who says he took part in the kidnapping, knows a lot about it. You've got a case that's been unsolved for 10 years. I would think you'd be kicking the doors down to want to talk to him at this point. Well, the time is right. Again, I will reiterate, we may well interview Paul Benacci, but it will be when we're ready to do it. How much more time has to go by? I have no idea. I think that's insane. It is a major cover-up. We can't get law enforcement help. This is when we need it. We can't take somebody to court without them, and they know it. It seems outrageous that you haven't spoken to him. That's your opinion. The case was bungled. Professionally speaking, from what I know of Mr. Bonacci, to sum it up, he is not a credible witness. What is he? A pathological liar. I think there's a lot of law enforcement people that are pathological liars also. There are those in law enforcement who believe Paul Benassi is a liar who has made up this entire story to gain an early release from prison, which he never got. Benassi has previously been charged with three counts of perjury by a grand jury, but those charges were dropped. Still, his incredible story, coupled with his impassioned expressions, begged the question, is this remarkable truth or remarkable theater? There are people who say you're a liar, a child molester, why should we believe anything you have to say? If anybody thinks I'm lying, I'll, I'll take lie detector tests to prove them telling the truth. I'll take any tests they want me to take. But regardless of who's telling the truth, cops or convict, the answer will do little to erase the pain of fathers like Don Martin, whose handsome little boy would be 22 years old today if he's still alive. 
in my bedroom. I've had the picture of him up on the wall. I don't normally tell anybody, but I always look at that picture every night before I go to sleep. And I wonder where he's at. And for the heartbroken parents of Johnny Gosh, who today would be a grown-up 22-year-old, the hurt never goes away. The police tell us they are aware of Benassi's claims. He is set to be released from prison in October. He could still face kidnapping charges. And if you have any information about these or other missing children, please call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678. But Noreen and her private investigators are adamant that Paul Benassi's story is the truth. In her recorded conversations with Paul, Noreen said that he described details about her son that were not reported in the media, including birthmarks, physical markings on Johnny's body, and idiosyncratic personal behavior, mannerisms, expressions, things like that, that Paul Benassi could not have known if he had never met Johnny. In a 1992 investigation conducted by America's Most Wanted, the show used Paul Benassi's description to locate that then-abandoned house in Monument, Colorado. And there, the team discovered a hidden underground chamber where, according to the executive producer, Paul Sperry, there were children's initials carved into the walls. For many reasons, it seemed like Paul Benassi's story was credible, and this was a trap house where children were held prisoner in the basement until they were sold into slavery. Years later, Noreen would actually claim that Johnny came knocking on her door one night as an adult and told her the same exact story that Paul Benassi had told her. Noreen said that he stated he had been taken sold into slavery, and that there were many people who wanted to kill him. He instructed her not to call the police or else everyone's lives would be in danger. This would be a story that Noreen's husband, John Sr., sadly did not believe, and this would kind of tear Noreen and John Sr. apart. And in fact, John did not really believe any of those conspiracy-like theories about Johnny's kidnapping. He was ready to move on. He divorced Noreen, and he didn't really stay involved in the case like Noreen did. He dismissed a lot of Noreen's ideas, and like many people in the community, he seemed to think that Noreen had become just a delusional, grieving mother. A lot of people thought she had basically gone crazy. But I see things a little differently. Okay, so this is where the story gets even deeper and delves into conspiracy theories. But these aren't just theories. Most of what I'm about to say has been substantiated. This child sex trafficking ring is said to have been based out of Omaha, Nebraska, and led by Lawrence E. King, who was the general manager of the Franklin Federal Credit Union at the time. He was one of the rising black stars in the GOP, and he was the former vice chairman of the National Black Republican Council. He even sang the national anthem at the 1984 Republican National Convention. He was known for throwing extravagant parties that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
In April 1988, the FBI raided his bank and charged King with embezzling nearly $40 million. But that's not all. Six young adults, including Paul Benassi, came forward saying that as teenagers, they had been forced into prostitution by King and flown to Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C., and other large cities to participate in orgies with pedophiles. Alleged attendees at these gatherings included some of the wealthiest and most influential figures in Nebraska and across the U.S., including men prominent in politics, the media, and even police officers who were in on this. A state Senate committee investigated both Lawrence E. King's financial dealings and the allegations of sex trafficking. The claims originated in the foster care system, where a social worker's report on victims' stories had been forwarded to authorities, but sadly it was ignored. Boys Town, the nationally renowned orphanage for underage boys, had numerous connections to the Franklin Credit Union, including commercial accounts and sending minors to gain work experience under King. So, to sum it up, Boys Town was very closely connected to the Franklin Credit Union that Lawrence E. King ran. Boys Town received a lot of donations from the Franklin Credit Union and people who were affiliated with Lawrence King. So, the Senate committee hired private investigator Gary Corridori to work on this case and compile evidence. Corridori was a former state trooper, and he drew up a list of 60 potential victims and conducted videotaped interviews. He had a lot of good information that was going to take down Lawrence King and all of these people who were affiliated with his child sex trafficking ring. But that didn't happen. And here's why. In July 1990, Corridori had in his possession photographs that were taken at Lawrence King's sex parties. These photographs included pictures of children involved in sex acts and pictures of prominent people in compromising positions. And he had these photographs in his briefcase, and he was on a trip, and ironically, Corridori's small airplane inexplainably disintegrated mid-air over Illinois. His plane blew up in the air, crashed, and he and his eight-year-old son were killed. And his briefcase containing these incriminating photos, hmm, it was never found. Now, these other 60 victims that Corridori had conducted interviews with started to receive anonymous threats. The feds also used intimidation and fear to get four of the victims to retract their stories altogether. There were actually many similarities between the Franklin scandal and the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking network. So the grand jury indicted Lawrence E. King for financial crimes and for paying men for sex, for which he would serve 10 years in prison. But he called these allegations of sex trafficking a carefully crafted hoax. 
There were two people in the story, two of these 60 victims, who refused to retract their story. They had nothing else to lose at this point, and those people were a woman named Alicia Owens and Paul Benassi. They were adamant that their stories were legit and real and true, yet they were indicted for perjury. At 21 years old, Alicia Owens was convicted, and she served four years in prison, two of which were in solitary confinement. Paul Benassi would later sue Lawrence King in civil court for damages done, and he was actually awarded a million dollars, but Lawrence King never paid up. Johnny Gosh's disappearance to this day has never been solved. His parents are still grieving his loss. There have been numerous documentaries, books, TV shows about the Johnny Gosh disappearance, one of which is a documentary called Who Took Johnny? And I highly recommend watching this if you want more information on this tragic and fascinating case. There are so many rabbit holes you could go down in this and so many people involved, it seems. You could literally make a whole season of a podcast about this one episode, but I've only got a little bit of time here today. So here's the thing. Most people think this story is so crazy that it could not possibly be true. There actually is a ton of evidence to support it. There are many witnesses with the exact same stories, and there are substantiating facts. Conspiracies and cover-ups happen all the time when big money is involved and the victims get silenced and squashed. Just like in this story, there were 60 victims who came forward but were intimidated enough to retract their stories, and the two that refused were put in prison for perjury, and the one who was investigating all of this was killed. What does that tell you? There's so much power behind these evil networks. Just think about the Catholic Church cover-ups that reached all the way from the U.S. to Rome. The Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking network that involved some of the world's most famous people. The Penn State University Jerry Sandusky cover-up that ruined the lives of young men and boys just to protect a football team. There's a preponderance of evidence that the depravity in our society is focused near the very top, and it's deeper and darker than most people can possibly imagine. So tonight, I leave you with one question. Who took Johnny Gosh? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime IRL. I will be back next week with another episode on a new case. And until then, you know what to do. Lock your doors, people. Bye-bye.
True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. Please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcast and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash truecrimeirlpodcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at truecrimeirl, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 